Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. John chapter 8. When you're there, say amen. For the three of you that have your Bibles here, the rest of you can look on the screen. Amen. I don't know about you, I like to carry my Bible, man. I like to have the physical Word of God. You got the Word, just throw it up. Make the devil mad real quick. Let me see it. Make him real mad. Look at all that. The Word, the sword. Yeah, that's right. That's how we're going to take him out is with the Word of God. And in verse 1, John chapter 8 and verse 1, New King James reads this way, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 2, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Jesus was a teacher, amen? And you know, Jesus taught truth. He didn't just teach to teach, but he was teaching truth. The Bible says that the church today, the body of Christ, that's you and I, we are a pillar in support of truth. There's only one truth, and it's not up for debate, and it's not up for opinion, it's not up to uh, man to try to discern or come up with our idea of truth. There's one truth, and we need to discover what God's Word says and what God's Word, and Jesus was teaching truth. And in verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees, who were also teachers of the law, by the way, scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, that means in the middle, uh, you, you got to imagine a church service here, okay? They're not uh, you know, just, uh, you know, Jesus just hanging out with a couple people. He went into the temple. He went into the synagogue, and he's teaching. And it says that they came to him. And we know large crowds would come in here. Jesus teach. They were astonished by his teaching. They said, what manner of teaching is it? What manner of man is this that has this amount of wisdom coming from him? So we're not just talking a small group. This is uh, a completely embarrassing position for this woman to be in. I mean, imagine somebody dragging in uh, uh, someone caught in the middle of a, uh, you know, sinful act right in the middle of our service, stopping the service, halting everything, and saying, we need to, we need to address this issue. And they said to him, teacher, and they call him teacher. So they recognize him as such. This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So I'll let you get the imagery on that one. Caught in the act of adultery. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. So now they are using the Bible as a premise or as a foundation of how we ought to move forward from here. They are coming to Jesus um, uh, at the very least on the level of equals. You're a teacher. We're teachers. This is what the law says. This is how the law tells us we should address this issue. This is how you should address this issue. This is what we think you should do. And they knew what they would do. Moses' law required and called for her to be stoned in their midst. It's only one problem here. To commit adultery, we only have half of the equation, don't we? Don't, right, I mean, if you know what's taking place here, without having to get graphic, that takes two to tango. Takes two to commit adultery. We only have one being brought up. The woman, which the crowd would sympathize with, because as soon as Jesus is forced to recount the law and say, well, you know what the law states. We got to take care of this woman. And all the crowd that have been following Jesus and been watching this merciful man and this gracious man, the one that sits with sinners, the one that invites tax collectors over to his house and invites himself over to the, the, the home of, of, of harlots and drunkards and the marginalized and the ones that are cast away. This man for sure is going to be pinned in a corner where he's going to have to procount uh, judgment upon the very ones that he says he's come to redeem and save. And in front of everybody, 
all his followers and everybody around, they're going to have to watch him cast a judgment of stoning upon this woman. Verse 6 says, this they said, testing who? Him. Testing him. That they might have something of which to accuse who? Him. So notice this. They're not here to accuse the woman. They actually have no interest in accusing the woman. Their interest is in using the woman. In fact, it could be very well put together by this group since they are trying to test him that this was actually a setup. Possibly the man who she's committing adultery with is one of their own. This is the reason why he's not brought out into the street in front of everybody else. But the woman is. Are you hearing me? Notice they have no interest in the life of this woman. They don't care about her at all. Except that she's a pawn to get their agenda done. They don't care about justice or injustice. They don't care about the law being carried out because that's what God put in place. The only reason they have brought this woman into this situation is to capture Jesus, corner him, pin him, put him in a corner where he is forced to either condone sin or condemn it. Jesus, are you going to condone sin, go against the law and watch this woman walk? Or are you going to condemn sin and the gracious, merciful Savior you say you are is now forced to carry out an act of judgment upon this woman in front of everybody to see? This was probably, of all the times that the Pharisees tried to tempt and test Jesus, this was probably the furthest and most damaging they ever went to attack his character and his integrity and to challenge his own announcement, his own testi uh, testimony that he is from God and he's the son of God. This is probably the, the, the cruelest way that they saw to pin him in a corner. So they did this testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. Look at his response. I said response. We get in situations like this where people demand a response, but rather than respond, we react. I said rather than respond, we react. There's a difference. Reactions are done quickly with very little thought and wisdom put to them. But a response requires intentionality. Responding requires us to be deliberate with what we say, careful with what we say, and also with what we do not say. And notice here, it's not what Jesus said instantly, initially, that defines him. It's what he doesn't say. It's how he holds his tongue. It's how he refrains from being forced into a corner and reacting when they tell him to react. On stage for everybody to see. He bends down in the ground and he starts riding in the dirt, doodling, right? That's what everybody wants to know. What was Jesus riding? WWJD, what would Jesus doodle? Yeah, you're waking up now, aren't you? We'll find out who everyone that's awake right now. What would Jesus doodle? What was he riding? The, the what is not as important as the why. What he was writing isn't as important as why he slowed his response. And he wasn't doodling on Twitter. He wasn't doodling on Instagram. He wasn't tweeting something out. He wasn't taking his thoughts from his, to his thumbs real quick and blasting it out before, you know, anybody, before he even had a chance to think about what's happening. He slowed his response. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin 
among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I heard somebody come up with something clever that said that he began writing their names and all the sins that they committed. And so they're all looking down, seeing their sins being blasted. And they're like, you know what? Never mind. He could have. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking even when they weren't vocal, didn't he? They would approach him and he'd say, you're thinking to yourself right now. And they're like, whoa, we can't win with this guy. Sure, he could have. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. The title of my message is A Better Response. A better response. You know, there's always a response and then there's always a better response. There's a way that I can react to this and then there's actually an even better way sometimes. And Jesus in this moment is showing us, and I believe the, the Lord is, is kind of having me, if, if you were with us on Wednesday, we were talking about keys to changing the world. Changing our world. How do we change the world? And I stated that one of those keys is the fact that we have to come out from the world. That we have to separate. That there's got to be some distinction. There's got to be a, 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 a way where we can distinctly tell the difference between the world. And when I say the world, I'm talking about its lusts, its nature, its desires, its lifestyles, it's, it's what it's known for. There's got to be a distinction. There's got to be a remarkable difference between the church of the living God, between you and I. That in Ephesians 5 tells us Jesus is coming back for a spotless church, one without spot or wrinkle, a holy church. If he's coming back for that church, then that means that that church must exist. It's out there somewhere. How do we find that church? How do we be that church? How do we discover how we can live that kind of life? How do we separate ourselves from the world yet still reach them? How do we live a life that is so far removed but yet is still in a position to change them and minister to them, to them and bring to them the gospel of good news that you and I received that has changed our life. Anybody thankful for the gospel and, that, and the life that it has changed in you? Come on, I got a couple of people that are thankful for what Jesus has done. Thankful that the blood was shed. Thankful that you confessed him as Lord. Thankful that by confessing him as Lord and making him not just Savior, but Lord over your life, owner of your life, that now I can submit my life to him. And in return, I don't have to remain submitted to the world, the fallen world, the, 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 the broken systems of this world. You know, there's, there, there's, there's so many sad cases that I see. And it's one reason why I do what I do is to help believers, help Christians, help the church know who you are, whose you are, and what you have at your disposal. There's, the, the only thing worse than... And an, an unbeliever is a believer that still tolerates a life like an unbeliever. And I'm not even just talking about sin. I'm talking about walking in sickness when there's divine healing made available for you. I'm talking about walking in lack and in poverty when he's made prosperity available to you. I'm talking about living a life below substandard, subpar to what God has for us as believers. 
That's my mission. That's my heart. That's my, I could get up here every weekend and just preach that message. Does that mean that you're going to live beyond uh, brokenness and despair? No, there's going to be trials and tribulations. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be circumstances. But I'm telling you today that you are above and not beneath. You are the head and not the tail. You don't have to live at the level of the discomfort that the world lives at. You have been called above that, to live above that, rise above that, and to help get others beyond that too. It belongs to you. It belongs to you. I said it belongs to you. Imagine living in this nation, a free nation, an independent nation, and and not accessing all the freedoms and all the liberties that are available to you. Imagine coming to this nation from another nation as an immigrant and still living like they live over there. When you have so much more at your disposal, there are people knocking the walls down, coming through the the doors into this country, into the United States of America to live the life we live. They don't have it where they come from. How many believers do that same thing in the kingdom of God? The kingdom has so much available to you. So we're going to reach this world. We're going to bring them a message. But yet, we are called to separate ourselves from them at the same time. But yet, we are called to live a distinctly different life than them as well. And so Jesus here, in John chapter 1, verse 14, John spoke, you know, probably the gospel of John is probably my favorite. It's a close second to Mark because, you know, well, that's my name. But, and I love the gospel of Mark because Mark is just about getting the work done. I mean, he's just going from town to town, city to city. I mean, he's just, he is getting it done. Mark is the action gospel. That's the action movie. That's the the action cinema, if you will. But this is the identity Jesus. John actually records seven times that Jesus says, I am. I am the light of the world. I am the the everlasting water. I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. Seven I am's recorded in this gospel. Jesus is revealing who he is. And in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says that the word became flesh. Jesus was the word before he became Jesus the man. He was the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word came down, put on human form, human flesh, just like you and I, became flesh and dwelt among us, it says. That means, uh, uh, it actually means to abode or make a tabernacle among. He made his home among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Here it is, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace, full of truth. Jesus himself was full of grace and full of truth. Not 50% grace and 50% truth. 100% grace and 100% truth. He was full of grace and full of truth. These two right here, those two words are two of the hardest things for the church to combine together in one place. And he was full of grace and truth. We either have grace messages and grace messages Churches that water down truth, bring a substandard and, 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 and a, a lower gospel than what Jesus ministered. Or we have truth churches that preach the truth and preach the word and preach sin and preach rebellion and preach, you know, lordship of Jesus so strongly that we don't ever recognize that he's gracious and he's merciful and he is giving you an opportunity, every opportunity he can to see you come into the kingdom. Not a God that's waiting to get you out, a God that is striving to get you in. We have one or the other. We have one or the other. And it was such 
a dichotomy and it was such a hard thing for mankind to reconcile that there's one person that has grace and truth that the Pharisees said this can't be. There's no way this man is who he says he is. We've got to find a way to get rid of him and they're going to all costs. They're, they're doing whatever they can to get this guy out. His ministry is on trial. His character is on trial. His integrity is on everything he says they question and they challenge. Everything he does, they're watching under a microscope. They're just waiting for him to break one of their rules and one of their laws. And now they've brought another woman, another individual into this destructive pattern that they have. That they would rather watch a woman lose her life if they can destroy his ministry. That's how far they would go. Because they can't reconcile that Jesus is full of grace, full of truth. How do we respond when we see the failures of the fallen world? How do we respond when we're surrounded by the very thing we oppose? Not just we oppose, the very thing God opposes. God speaks very strongly of sin. God hates it. To make it a little more uh, understandable and a little more relevant, sin is simply rebellion. That's what it is. It's literally rebelling against the word of the king. That's what sin is. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they disobeyed a command. A very simple, almost, you know, the kind of commands that we count to three with our kids on. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. Don't, don't you do it. You're going to get time out. You're going to go in the corner. You're going to get a spanking. I'm going to count three, four, five. You've seen those parents just keep on. Get to the three already, man. What are you? That's no wonder they ain't listening to you. They're waiting until you get to 10, 15. You got to get the one. That's, you got to get the one. One. I don't even need to get to two. I get to two. It's too late. That's right. Yeah, one, too late. It's over. That's right, Miss Sue. You get one and then you get too late. I'm using that. I'm using that. Sure am. Don't eat of the tree. It wasn't the fruit itself, but it was what it represented. It represented, I got this. See, when we sin, when we rebel, when we disobey, ultimately what we're telling God is, I got this. I can do it on my own. It was an image of self-rule. It was an image of, I don't need to submit to your authority. See, when you don't submit to the authority, you don't come under the blessing. The blessing's in the authority. God doesn't have rules and regulations and legalities. And yes, there's legalities. This is a kingdom. This is a kingdom. We're, we're not talking about a religion. Jesus did not come to set up a religion. Jesus was not a religious man. Jesus was a political man. Jesus was a government figure. He came as a king. A king. That's what he came to do. He came as a king to restore the kingdom that was lost. What's a kingdom? A kingdom is a king's domain. It's the territory within which a king rules. There's two things you have to have to be a king. You have to have authority and you have to have territory. Imagine having authority but no territory. Imagine having territory but no authority. To be a king, you have to have a domain over which you exercise rule and you have to have the authority to rule over that. And to be a king, Jesus, to operate as a king, you have to be given authority. You don't take authority. That's to be given to you. Jesus came to rule. Jesus came to establish the kingdom, and the authority was given to him. He told his disciples that. All authority's been given to me. I didn't take it. it try taking authority. 
Try letting someone come in your house and take authority. Try letting someone, try, try having someone just come take authority of your vehicle, take authority of your position at work, take authority over your family. You don't take authority unless you do it illegally. No, authority has to be handed over. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They handed over their authority, put it on a silver platter for Satan. Yeah, he's a thief. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But in that garden that day, he was given his authority. The Bible says even today, he's still the ruler and God of this age. So we're in a kingdom. Everything that these Pharisees are saying on the truth side is true. But that's what truth looks like when you don't have grace. That's what truth looks like because truth was never meant to be a weapon by which we destroy lives. Truth was meant to be the avenue by which we redeem lives. So truth in the wrong hands becomes a weapon rather than a tool for bringing life to people. Jesus was the truth. And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they think they're equals with him. You're a teacher just as we're a teacher. You understand just as well as we understand. This is how we respond to these things. This is how, this is the action we carry out. And they were going to scripture. These individuals had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They had to have it memorized. They knew the law. They just didn't know the lawmaker. They knew the law. They knew what was transcribed and prescribed as to how to deal. But they saw truth. They saw mere truth as a way to eliminate people from their sect and from their following. They saw truth as a way to identify who's with us and who's not. They saw truth as a way to hit people over the head as soon as they messed up. And they would walk around watching and waiting for people to fail so they could carry out their truth. Oh, they had knowledge. They had knowledge. Be careful what you ask for. They had knowledge, but knowledge without spiritual growth and spiritual maturity will kill you and destroy you. It'll turn you into a hypocrite because you'll know what to do even though you yourself do not do it. Even Jesus said of the Pharisees, listen to what they say, just don't do what they do. He even said that. Listen to what they're teaching, listen to what they're saying. But don't follow in their ways. They are whitewashed tombs. They're dead on the inside, carrying dead things, but all cleaned up on the outside. And so now they're faced with an individual. Notice they're not attacking the woman. They're actually attacking Jesus. They're not accusing the woman. They're actually accusing Jesus. The, the, the woman now has become a byproduct to their agenda, to their overall goal, to dismantle Jesus. They couldn't even see truth even though it was standing right in front of them. Because truth wasn't something. Truth is someone. And they missed it. Their heart became so callous and so hardened by their policing of truth and their policing of sin that they forgot the value of the sinner. And this is really what it comes down to. In our ministry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what ministry is that? All of us are called, it says, to the ministry of reconciliation. What's that? Reconciling or bringing back together what was once together but now has been separated. Bringing back people that are far from God, bringing them near to him. Everybody, everybody in this room, that's your ministry. That's what we're called to do. But that's a very difficult job and task to carry out when you care more about the truth than the sinner. 
What is our value for those that are far from God? What is our value? When we see people broken and hurting, walking down paths that today are darker than ever before, they're making up new ways to sin. What is, what is our response? Or better yet, what is our reaction? Is it to comment? Is it to share our dislike? Is it to come up with the 18 scriptures that we can find that refute that kind of behavior and those kind of lifestyles? Is it to put ourselves up on a pedestal? I'm saying this because as the day draws near, our assignment's going to become more and more laser-focused. And we're not going to be able to play games much longer. I don't know if you've noticed the tone in my voice the last few times that we've been together. I promise I'm a happy person. I promise things are great in my life. I promise I just brought my, my brand new child home. He's not in the hospital anymore. Things are great. We are living life right now. But I promise you I'm becoming more and more focused and more and more sincere about what the church is called to do in these last days. It's been ingrained in my heart. It's been put on, it's been burned into my heart. I feel the Lord taking us in a direction of truly defining what the church looks like in the last days. And we're in the last days. And I know you've been hearing that for the last 25, 30, 40, 50 years. I have too. We've been in the last days all my days. (laughs) I don't even know any other days. All I know is last days. That's probably three or four when I heard, first heard the term last days. And now they're saying it, we're in the last of the last days. Whatever you got to say to make it more clear, we're in the end. This thing's winding up quickly. Those of you that are a part of Anchor Faith Family and been here long enough, you know we're not an escapist church. We're not trying to get out. We're not trying to lock ourselves in here. I'm trying to reach Valdosta for the kingdom of God. I'm trying to take as many of them and bring them in here so we can get them there and get heaven here as quickly and as fast as possible. And if you're about any other mission, might not be comfortable around here. Because you're going to see people busy reaching the lost. There's a seat open next to you, probably an entire row open in front of you. That needs to be filled with lost people. And I'll pack them in there before I ever care about somebody catching some virus. I will get sinners in this building. And we will teach them the word of God. We will teach them who they are in Christ. They will live up to their full God-given destiny and potential. And they'll turn this world upside down. And I don't need to be trained. I don't need to be educated. I don't need to have the right amount of money. I don't care if you give or don't give. I don't care if you come or don't come. I don't care if you serve or don't serve. We're going to reach them. We're going to do it. We got work to do. And I don't have time to be a Pharisee. And I don't have time to shelter Pharisees that want to play games. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's happy. Tell him, he's happy. I promise. I promise. But we got work to do. These Pharisees thought they were on Jesus' level, but they found out very quickly they were far from it. In fact, Jesus turned the table on them and he said, you're not on my level. You're actually on her level. He said, the first one, I love Jesus. I love this response. The first one that's never sinned. And immediately, they had to turn their eyes from outward and bring them inward. What's the first thing we got to do to reach the world around us? Look inside. You're not going to change the world around you until you change the world in you. Now I'll say this. We do not believe and we do not preach and we do not buy into the lie you are sinners saved by grace. I once was a sinner. Once I'm saved by grace, God sees me as a believer, a child, kingdom citizen the sinner 
has come off. You can believe what you want to believe, but my Bible doesn't show me that I'm a sinner. Sinners sin. Dogs bark. And I can bark like a dog, but it don't make me a dog. You're saying you're perfect, Pastor? I'm perfect in my growing up and desiring to be like him. Do I always get it right? No. But you know what? I've got an advocate with the Father. As soon as I sin, I can go to the Father and he is faithful and just to forgive me, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when he sees me, guess who he sees? Jesus. Paul used that term over and over and over. In him, in Christ, in whom we have redemption. I'm seated with him in heavenly places. So just want to bring that clarity. You come into the kingdom of God, you are his. You are a child of God. And he doesn't have sinners in his family. You came out of darkness, you've been brought into light. Now, do you still need to grow and develop and mature so we can put off some of these things of the world? Absolutely we do. And this is not a time, I put it on uh, 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 social media this week, this is not a time for the church to be dabbling with sin. This is a time for the church to define sin because until we define it, we can't get people out of it. They're not gonna be convicted of something they don't need to be or know to be convicted of. We don't dabble. We don't dabble. If it even has the appearance of evil, I'm fleeing far from it. Far from it. I'm not towing the line, not seeing how close to the edge I can get. No. Not if it's going to cause someone else to stumble. Not if it's going to cause my witness to be compromised. Not if it's going to cause me to be in a state or a position where I can be questioned or challenged. I've got to make sure I'm in the best physical shape possible. I'm not talking about working out and dieting. I'm talking about being in the position I need to be in to reach the world that is dying and going to hell. This is not as long as I throw God in the mix of my stuff, he's going to be fine. As long as I add him to my schedule, he is the schedule. He is the schedule. He sets the agenda. And I'm just trying to get in line with what he's doing. Anybody else? Amen? He turned the tables on him and he says, the one, the first one who has not sinned, you can cast the stone. But of course it says in verse 9, those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one. You know what's even more sad to me in this scenario? Is that they went out when they could have gone toward. They left one by one when the merciful Savior was right in front of them. And they just came face to face with their own sin. Just came face to face finally with their own depravity. Finally got their eyes off of what everybody else is doing and watching everybody else and being the the truth police that they were. And they finally looked inward for the first time and walked away. I hope that that's not our response. I hope. That when we see the depravity on the inside, we can go towards the one that is the solution and the healer and can bring broken things and make them new again. Bring them to the feet of Jesus. Because you know Jesus' heart. See, they were trying to get Jesus to, to come up with a reaction or a response to her sin. He had already settled his response to her sin before he ever came into this world. The Bible says that Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundations of the world. He had solved her sin issue before sin was even an issue. You see this? Jesus had already brought the answer for this. He had already settled within himself, 
I'm going to the cross for this woman's sin. I'm going to the cross for this adultery. I'm going, I'm laying down my life. I'm giving up who I am for her. I am laying it all down. I am the ultimate sacrifice. He had already come up with that decision. There was nothing that they were going to show him or tell him that would change his mind. But you know who else he died for? Them. You know who to said cross? The ones that were going to put the nails in his hands and his feet. The ones that were going to take the last breath out of his mouth and he was going to be buried. They were the ones that were about to commit the execution of his life. And what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want us as a church to have a very clear response. Not just to sin, but to the sinner. I want our hearts to be moved like God's heart is moved. I want our eyes to be open to see what God sees. We saw it on Wednesday, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says it. He says, we, we don't take into account any longer. We don't regard people by their flesh. But no, I've got a different perspective. I've got a different view. I now see. Yeah, I know. The, 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 the sin is disgusting. I know it's wrong. I know that it, it, the closer you get to God, the further away you get from that and the harder you can feel about it. And I know that it will mess with everything on the inside. But you've got to remember there's a person, there's a life, there's a soul that God still has worth and value for. Worth and value. That woman's life was of no value to those Pharisees. That woman's life was of no value. She was a pawn in their cruel game of trying to catch Jesus in a trap. No value. But to Jesus, verse 11, he says, neither do I condemn you because in John chapter 3 after verse 16 it says in verse 17 that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world you know we've heard it said come as you are right come into the kingdom you know technically you can't you can't come into the kingdom as you are. The very notion of repentance is change. That's, that's what repentance is. Change, in fact, it says change your thinking. So many times we're so busy working on changing our lifestyle and behavior and actions. You don't change your thinking, you won't change your living. Jesus is trying to get to the Root of the matter, he's trying to get to the heart. He's trying to get to the real issue. The reason why this fruit's coming out is a reason why this is being exhibited. This is a reason why this is being shown forth. Because we got to get to the depth of it. We got to get to the root of it. Repentance means to change. But the power is that through repentance, it's not you changing. It's God changing you as you submit yourself to his plan and to his way. Are you with me? This might be a little more evangelistic or foundational than you're used to, but sometimes we need to get to the basics. Sometimes we need to remember why we're doing what we're doing. Sometimes we need to remember the message and the gospel and the power. Think about the power that it had to change your life, the mess that you were in, the stuff that he brought you out of, the stuff that you'd still be stuck in, maybe even dying in right now, had it not been for the gospel, had it not been for the word, had it not been for the message of reconciliation, that somebody saw your life and saw value and said, I'm bringing you to the Father because He loves you and I love you. But for that to stop with us goes against the notion of what the gospel is even all about. 
The gospel wasn't about self-preservation. The gospel wasn't about just getting right between you and God and just living your fruity little Christian life, blessed and highly favored, blessed going in, blessed coming out. It's about reaching the world. Last time I checked, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Yeah. How can we convict people of sin without condoning the sin or condemning the person that's sinning? Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us. First thing, you look inward. You know, it it really helps when you recognize you are really no different than me. You start there. It really helps. We bring ourselves down off the pedestal a little bit and we recognize, yeah, I, I've, I've been able to partake of the blessing, the inheritance of God. I, I, am, I am now royalty. I'm now greatness in the kingdom of God. I'm a kingdom citizen, but I could have been there. I could have been you. It starts by looking inwardly. Pharisees don't look inwardly. Pharisees look around. Pharisees look around. Pharisees only look good when someone else looks bad. Have you noticed that we live in this culture where the only way I'm uplifted is if I degrade you? Have you noticed this? We can't exalt one without tearing down the other. It's across the board. And that's what these Pharisees would do. They'd walk around in their robes. They'd walk around in, in, in their things. They'd say their prayers so loud out in the streets. Jesus said, man, get your prayers in your closet. This isn't a show. This isn't a put on so everybody can see how awesome you are. No, it's not the outward. It's the inside out. It's the inside out. I've got to look inward. I've got to recognize the reason why I can minister to you is because he changed me. And because he changed me, he can change you. I'm not condoning the sin, but I'm not condemning the sinner either. I'm not condoning the action and the lifestyle. I'm calling it out for what it is. A spade is a spade. And I'm telling you, this lifestyle goes directly against God's plan. This goes directly against God's will. This goes directly against. And, and everything that you are ha- have happening in your life is a result of your being separated from him. Call it what it is. Because what else did he have to say to this woman? Neither do I condemn you. Go sin no more. That's a really minimal statement. He didn't have a counseling session. He he didn't go run down the other guy, the other person. He really just said, go and sin no more. And he's telling this to a woman before he's even gone to the cross. Before he's even given her the ability to go and literally sin no more. See, Jesus didn't come to just condemn sin. He didn't come just to define sin. He didn't come to just let us all know what sin looks like and how bad it is. He came to destroy sin. He literally died on the cross to destroy sin. Sin. I know we've preached for so long that he came to get you out of hell and bring you to heaven. That's the penalty of sin. No, he didn't come just to destroy the penalty of sin. He came to do away with the power of sin. You know, I bet you, if you offered anybody freedom from their sinful lifestyle. Because the Bible even tells us that sinful, it's pleasurable for a moment. Sin, it's fun for a moment. But after a while, 
it causes so much depravity and so much decay and so much hurt and so much pain. If you gave them a ticket out of their sin, they would take it. But we've been, we've been shorting people. When we tell them that there is nothing they can do about their sin on this earth, but thank God one day you'll die and you'll go to heaven and you'll get to be with him. That's deception. That's wrong. That's evil. That is not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to rid you from underneath being subjected to and being ruled by a sinful lifestyle. Sinful behaviors. He came to separate you from sin completely. Not just your past sins, not just your present sins, your future sins. Everything that sin does to the life of the believer, God came to rid it of you. Take it away. It doesn't have to hold you in bondage. It doesn't have to keep you captive. He wants you free. He wants people free from sin. And sin's an interesting thought. Because sin was around, or the opportunity for sin rather, even in paradise. If you're waiting for your external to get so good and, and your external to become such a place where sin, like, yeah, sure, there's things you need to do externally. If you have a problem with alcohol, maybe you shouldn't go to a bar. Maybe you shouldn't hang out with people that get drunk. Maybe you shouldn't hang out with people that just drink it all the time. That might be a problem. You need to do something with your environment. But if you don't do something with your heart, your environment will never change who you are. I mean, think about it. The only sinless society that we even know of is in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and about six verses in Genesis chapter 3. That's all we got. Paradise. Oh, man, we want to go back to paradise, don't we? There was still evil. There was still an enemy. Come on. Even in paradise, God had an enemy. Opposition is nothing new to God. But he provided a way. I said he provided a way. He said, go and sin no more. I'm not condoning the action. But I'm not condemning the one that's acting. Worship team, if you come. It's sobering. To recognize the value of the life. A true passion for holiness never disregards or compromises the life that you are calling to live holy. I'll say that again. A true passion for holiness never disregards or compromises the life you are calling to live holy. Should we have a heart to see people become free from the bondage of sin and death? Absolutely. Should we remain in a posture where sin sickens us and sin uh, 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 aches our heart and hurts to watch people tearing their lives apart? Absolutely. But you can be passionate about holiness and still be passionate about people. I said you can be passionate about holiness and still be passionate about people. I want us as a church, as God's people, to be the messengers, the carriers of life. If every person in this room would go into their walk of life, into their day-to-day -day living, being a carrier of the light, carrier of the gospel, carrier of the life of God, 
having that remarkable distinction from what is surrounding us, where people know there is something different about you. By our faith, by our love, by our life, by our responses, by what we stand up for, by what we speak out against, but also what we don't speak out against, but also in how we treat those that are lost. It starts with us. And I tell you, if our heart is in a position where we can't see a sinner or someone lost and someone far from God and, and, and not be moved with compassion, there's something that's got to change on the inside of us. Guys, some of us are joking about lifestyles that are being tolerant, tolerated and acceptable. We're joking about it, forgetting that there's a life hanging in the balance. Some of us are very outspoken about what we're against, but we don't really know what you're for. Our presence online, our presence on social media, our presence in our classrooms, our presence in the workplace, our presence in the community. This isn't an anchor faith church thing. This is a church of the living God thing. And no, I didn't just make up a new denomination. I mean the church. There's a church of everything these days. The church that Jesus is building. Matthew chapter 16 says that you will be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. That church, the one that's built upon the rock. What's the rock? His truth, his foundation. We're going to continue to preach truth. I'm not condoning and I'm not simplifying and I'm not watering anything down. But when I call us to recognize sin and call out sin, we're also recognizing that there's a value for the life that is sinning. We've got to find a way to separate the two. We've got to find a way to operate with grace and truth. I'll make it a mission for the rest of my life if I have to, to find out how do we do that. How can we be that church? Why do I have to be one or the other? Oh, that's the church where people go to because they could, they let you do this and this and this and this and this. Oh, that's the church that that that's real hard and strict and, you know, three or four hour long services and why do I got to be one or the other? If I'm going to be the body of Christ, if I'm going to be the church of God, we should be full of grace. Our words should be seasoned. Come on. We are the salt of the earth. I said we're the salt of the earth. There should be a posture and a position. They don't stand for this, but man, you're welcome there. Hello? How many, do you know any churches that you could give that title to? You're welcome there because they won't ever talk about your sin or call it out. Or you might not want to go to that church because they are openly opposed to that. We don't stand for it, but I'll stand for your life. Being separated from that. Now, if you choose to live whatever way, obviously, you don't have to stay. But I want to make sure my posture and my heart and my position on the inside recognizes value for every life that's on this planet. And I can see past the brokenness on the outside. I can see past the destruction that's happening. And I can see past... My heart can break because you're far from him. And man, if you only knew the life, if you only knew the life, you could be living.
You think you're having fun doing that, man, get in the kingdom. Do it God's way. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.